Welcome to Literary Speaking with Crystal Lee Quibell. Literary Speaking is the author's guide to writing and publishing, sharing tips and tricks for aspiring authors. Crystal Lee's expert guests will bring you the latest information on how to write and publish your book into being. Are you ready to tell your story? Here's your host. Welcome to Literary Speaking. I'm your host, Crystal Lee Kybel, and today my guest is author Pam Houston. Pam is the author of the current memoir, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country, as well as two novels, Contents May Have Shifted and Sight Hound. She also has two collections of short stories, Cowboys Are My Weakness and Waltzing the Cat, and also a collection of essays titled A Little More About Me, all published by W.W. Norton. She teaches in a low-res MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. She's also a professor of English at UC Davis and a co-founder and creative director of the literary nonprofit Writing by Writers. Today, we're going to discuss her work, book touring, and all things writing. Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. In, in reading the memoir, which I absolutely adore and have really enjoyed, it seems like there's this sort of braiding between how you take care of this land and the animals along with your personal story. You're kind of, the chapters sort of alternate, you know, between ranch life and, and then things that are currently happening or things that have happened in the past. Did you sort of plan it out when you began to write it that it would sort of not just be about you, but also about the ranch and the animals and, and people who came to stay there as well? Well, it was actually the other way around. I The first draft of the book was really, really focused on the ranch. People said, oh, you're writing a memoir. I said, well, not really. I'm writing a, a memoir of place. And I tried to make the book really be only about the animals and the ranch. That was the original <laughs> idea. And um, I just kept saying, right deeply into the pasture, I said to myself, like, and and sort of tried to leave myself, not out of it, but really only talk about myself as someone who the ranch um, empowered and enabled and affected and brought up and taught, you know. And then when I turned the book into my agent very early, a couple years ago, um, just the, f- the first really solid draft, she it was it was my agent who said, "Isn't this the book where you really talk about what happened to you as a child?" And my first response to her was, "Gosh, have I done anything but?" Because I just feel like the stuff that happened. I had a you know violent childhood. I was a child of alcoholics. My father broke my femur when I was four. Like I feel like that stuff just hangs around. You know, all the books like it hangs around my life, but. She said, no, you haven't written about it directly. It's always been couched in fiction or metaphor or shadow, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. This is what the ranch was the cure for, so maybe you should actually write about it. So, And and that seemed fine with me. You know, a thought I didn't have was, oh, no, I don't want to do that because I'm secretive because I'm not, you know. So that's when it really became about my, my early life. You know, that's when I added my early life. And then a little later, um, I just thought to myself, well, I can't really write this book about my little piece of paradise at 9,000 feet without addressing the larger climate catastrophe that we're in the middle of because over the course of the years of writing the book, you know, it has become increasingly 
obvious that we're in big trouble. And so, so that's sort of how my, my current life and, and, you know, the fact of climate change and the fact of the traveling I've done came into the book. Mm -hmm. So those two things came into the book naturally, but later. I think it was really interesting because it kind of, you know, you're describing childhood trauma and dealing, you know, with your dad and, and how your mom sort of turned this blind eye. And it feels like in a way that, you know, you, you come upon this ranch. So it's explained in the book that, so the royalties from your previous book and a signed copy helped you to secure a down payment on the ranch. So you, you acquired this 120 acre ranch and it feels so much like you're, you're making a new family with the animals and land and like mothering it in a way. And in a way it feels like it sort of mothers you back. Um, absolutely. You know, that, I, as I said, you know, I, I tried to write the ranch, I mean, I tried to write the book just being about the ranch and, and then my mother insinuated herself and the idea of mothering. I mean, my mother is a huge presence in my life, even all these years after her death. And, um, she wasn't much interested in being a mother. We were very close and she was a super talented, amazing person. And, you know, we definitely had a relationship, but it, you wouldn't have called it exactly mothering, <laughs> you know. That, and so, so I went looking for mothering in my life and found it, you know, in, in other people, a, a grade school teacher or you know, this wonderful babysitter I had, Martha Washington. But in terms of, like, long-term real parenting, you know, it was the ranch that taught me how to be responsible, you know, that taught me how to be consistent, that taught me, you know, how to show up um, in times of disaster. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I definitely taught how to mother by the ranch, and I was also certainly mothered by the ranch. It's a very um, healing, loving, sort of cradling piece of ground, even just physically, the way it's a it's a meadow, it's a round meadow in the middle of a giant um horseshoe of mountains. So it it, it feels protective. Mhm. I really liked how, you know, there's certain points where you bring up, you know, climate change and and just, you know, speaking of a scientist friend that he says, you know, I don't have much hope, you know, for things the way they're going, but then there's ways that you inject hope by looking at the beauty of right now and everything that's happening on the ranch now. So I really thought that was, it was kind of uh, inspiring. It kind of does bring a sort of hope to the reader because I think we can get caught up in that. Like everything is awful. <laughs> yeah. Right. Kind of feeling. And it just seems like it attracts a lot of people um, to that place as well. Like friends. And when you all come together for your dog Fenton and, you know, you're you're sleeping on the dog porch, right? And I think right. there was a there was a moment where I I think it was um betrayal and you said it feels like a betrayal because you knew that the next day you had to take Fenton to be put put to sleep and um he was in pain and your friend said betrayal doesn't the word betrayal doesn't belong on this porch and I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean the ranch has definitely become a gathering place for 
people to talk about hope and, you know, not a kind of blind hope. I mean, that's really important to me. Like I'm an optimist and I'm always looking for ways to be hopeful. But one of the things this book is about is, is, you know, how do we really celebrate all the wonderful things that are still happening in the world? How do we celebrate all the things that are still beautiful about nature without, you know, turning a blind eye to the things that are wrong and, um, and, and how do we hold the sorrow of, of whatever it is, if it's a a dying Mm -hmm. dog, if it's a dying parent, if it's, um, a dying ecosystem, you know, the rising sea level, like, like we have to hold the grief about that at the same time as, you know, also not shutting ourselves off from the beauty and the joy and, you know, just sort of coming to terms that that's probably just what being a grown up means is to, to be able to hold those things together. Yes. Um, but the ranch has become a place where, I mean, I have, I have something called ranch gatherings where I invite a lot of people from a lot of different areas of my life. And we talk about how to, how to be better and how to fight some of the terrible things that are going on in this country and how to, um, you know, how, how to, how to love the earth and how to love each mm-hmm. other and how to love people who are struggling under these extreme conditions and, you know, just all of that. I really, I thought it was so interesting when you, you get this box of letters and there's all the various, you know, sort of land titles and things from the previous owner and you find out about this woman named Myrtle. So it seems right. it, it was such a moment because throughout the book, I just feel like it's so, it's such a great, it's like feminist and you're taking care of everything and you're so strong and, and in spite of everything that happens, you just like keep getting back up and you're, you know, conquering all this stuff. And then you find out this woman named Myrtle who never got any credit, but she's mm-hmm. actually one of the main people who, who kept it going. Right. Right. I mean, the, the homestead, which, which my ranch is made up of, was filed on by um, Myrtle's father, John Pinkley. Um, and he gets credit for having homesteaded the ranch. It's in his name. He left it to his son, Bob, who lived on it for about 60 years, 65 years until he died. He's wow. buried on the top of the hill. They both are. Um, mm-hmm. But turns out, come to read the issues of what was called the Creed Candle, which was the newspaper from the early 1900s in Creed, and some letters from relatives and just putting together all the research of everything I could find out in this tiny town I live in about about Bob and John and his history. John was kind of a womanizer and a boozer, and he was often thrown in jail, and I don't <laughs> think he liked to work very hard, it turns out. And it was actually his his daughter Myrtle who came up, came out and what's called proved up. She was, she had married someone in town kind of to get away from the family. And so she was living closer to town, but just before the homestead, uh, the patent expired, she came out and, um, and did the work of brush clearing and cabin building and all those things to make it. So her dad got to claim the ranch and mm-hmm. um, she is given no official credit for that in anywhere in the record, but it was a woman who, who basically cleared the brush and built the cabin in the first place. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Just 
Because as you're reading, right, it's about midway through kind of when you discover that. How long did it take you to write Deep Creek altogether? It took a long time. It usually takes me about four years to write a book, start to Mm -hmm. finish, and this one took six. Um, And that was partly because I didn't really know how to write a memoir when I started. Um, I had written a lot of nonfiction. I'd written a lot of personal essays, which I think are really different um, just in terms of thinking about a a book-length arc over the course of the memoir. And I'd written book-length works of fiction. Um, But I had to kind of teach myself how to write a memoir, and I had to learn about the difference between the arc of a memoir and the arc of a novel. Um, And... And so that took a little extra time. Also, the fact that I started out really wanting to just write about the ranch and wound up with these two other, you know, kind of big subjects, climate change and my childhood, um, that took a lot of revision. And, um, yeah, I was just a lot more tentative with this book because I was in a form that I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then do you... I mean, you spoke about handing in an earlier draft to your agent. So how how does that work for you? Do you just, like, go back and you keep polishing back and forth together? Or, you know, does your agent kind of get quite involved with editing, or is it more just here's some suggestions and you can kind of adjust? Well, it, it I had a, a three different people reading it at that point. I, I turned it into my agent. And she suggested um, I add the stuff about my childhood, which I did. And then I turned it in to my editor at Norton, and she um, she had a lot of trouble with a lot of things in it. And I think, and, and she felt that I hadn't written to the proposal that I had written, you know, that I wrote that she approved, and. Mm-hmm. I felt exactly the opposite. You know, I had tried with all my might to write exactly to the proposal. So we came to this kind of impasse because she said, well, you didn't write the book you said you were going to. And I said, no, I wrote exactly the book I said I was going to. And, you know, and I mean, we've done books together. We, we like each other. We get along fine. But there was literally this impasse. And I absolutely believed that she believed that I hadn't. And I believed that I had. And we really didn't know how to go forward and so I went back to my agent and she said you know there's a woman in our office her name is Michelle Mortimer a woman another agent in my agent's office who said you know she's just so good on the page let's give it to Michelle so we gave it to Michelle and Michelle made six suggestions and it was the single best editing I've ever gotten in my life she made six six suggestions for some pretty big changes um, and I did all six of them and and then everyone was happy. <laughs> so it was just I a case that. of like excellent, excellent editing. You know, um, my editor had been so disappointed with the book she didn't even really know what to tell me or if she did tell me what to do, like it didn't make any sense to me. And yeah. I wanted to make it better for her but I literally didn't know how and so then it just took this outside person who really wasn't even, you know, no one I had worked with before, but it was my agent's suggestion and, and it was 
golden. I mean, everything she said, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And so I made those six changes, which, you know, took another six months or eight months. And then basically we went forward to, you know, to start the publishing process. I love that because it feels so much more collaborative because the writing process can be so solitary, right? Right. And just those right. small suggestions, how I feel like that's that's really good editing when you can make those like six suggestions and then it completely changes everything, you know, for you to be yeah. able to go in and shape it. So do you have, for you, I know some people, you know, they talk about calling in the muse or they have a, like a certain ritual they do when they're going to write or a place. Do you have anything like that that you kind of rely on when you're writing? I, I've I've never quite gotten to the muse as, as an idea, it's it's too mysterious for me. You know, I like the yeah. idea of hard work. Also, I picture a lady in a long gown, and that doesn't really make <laughs> me want to do anything. Um, because I teach so much and because I travel um, for public speaking and also just for fun, uh, I I don't have a regular writing ritual. You know, when I'm at the ranch and when I have time to work at the ranch, which is kind of the ideal situation for writing, I I do have a cabin. I just recently, um, Bob Pinkley, the man who lived on the ranch for 60 years, he left a cabin, which I had left alone. It's just a tiny cabin by the creek. Mm-hmm. And I had left it alone kind of in honor of his spirit or ghost or whatever that yeah. might be hanging around the ranch. And then it was about to fall down and if I didn't restore it. And so... Two years ago, I restored it, and that has become my writing cabin. And so if I lock myself in there for the day, it's a great place to write, and I've never really had that. I've written all my other books at the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's a wonderful writing ritual is to go out there and work for five or six or ten hours. Um, I'm just getting used to it because I've only had it a short time. But otherwise, I can write anywhere. I, I write well in hotel rooms because there's no distractions. I write mm-hmm. really well on airplanes. Um, I actually try to get a lot of writing done on airplanes because, you know, I don't turn the Internet on and I don't have a reason to get up and take the dogs outside, you know, so I'm trapped <laughs> in the seat and that actually works for me. Um, but I can honestly write anywhere if I have to. But it's also true that I don't write all that much. I'm not a regular writer. I'm not one of those set your alarm for five in the morning writers. I'll go weeks or even months without writing if I don't really feel it. Um, but then when I do feel it, I, I can write for 14, 16 hours a day. So it's not a very sanity-making you know, ritual. I can't comfort myself with, my, with the idea of my routine, but... It's just mm-hmm. how it's worked out for me. And it's possible that I would have written a lot more if I really tried to stick to a routine, but I'm not sure I would have written better, you know, um, because there are some times when I just feel like I can't face it and my instinct tells me it's better to just do something else those days, you know. And, and, I, and because exactly. I teach so much, because I teach so much, I... I always have student work to read or I always have ways to occupy myself that, that aren't, you know, writing. Mm-hmm. When you, 
you know, after you're, you've written and you're, you're ready to pitch, how, how originally did you connect with agents and sell your work and how has that sort of evolved and changed over the years? Well, I have my very same agent that I've had from the beginning, and I also have my very same publisher that I've had from the beginning, even though my original editor passed away um, mm. and, you know, died of old age. I mean, she, you know, she, she put in a good, <laughs> a good life, and so now I have, have a new editor. I have my second editor. But compared to a lot of my friends who are writers, you know, my path has been super consistent. Um, mm. I, I met my editor at a writer's conference called Writers at Work when I was in graduate school. Uh, I was in graduate school at Utah and the graduate students got together to put on a conference, which still exists. I believe that conference still exists, but it was my year of graduate students all these years ago, 20, 26, 27, 28, some years ago. Um, that that made the first Writers at Work conference. And it was kind of a crazy thing. I, I was in graduate school at Utah. I was writing stories. Um, and my teachers at Utah really didn't like my work. My, my colleagues did okay, my cohort. We had a really good cohort, and I learned a lot from them. But my teachers, I have an evaluation from Utah that says Pam should find something else to do with her hands. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. Um and I went to this conference that we put on, not expecting anything. Um, we were supposed to, for all the volunteer work we did, we got in exchange for that a 20-minute consultation with a visiting writer or agent or editor. And I just put down writers because I had been so convinced that my work was bad and there was no reason for me to show it to an agent or editor and I went to see who I'd been paired with, and the woman said, oh, well, um, sorry, all the people you requested were full. You know, I couldn't get you in. And so I, that was all right, because you know, <laughs> I, I had learned not to expect much. And, and I was walking away, and a woman stopped me, and she said, hey, I just heard that lady be, you know, crappy to you. And I'm here, and I'm an editor, and if you want me to read your story, I'm happy to. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be Shannon Ravenel, who founded Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill and also oh, was cool. at the time the um, series editor for the Best American Short Stories. And, you know, I didn't know her, but she was a nice lady. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I gave her my one little story that I felt good about. And she got really excited about it. And she showed it to the woman, Carol Smith, who became my editor for the next 20 years. And she also wrote to my agent in New York, who, of course, was not my agent yet, and said, hey, I met this girl in Utah, and you'd really like her. She writes about horses and dogs. So basically every good thing that happened to me in publishing-wise at the beginning happened because this lady, Shannon Ravenel, um, who's you know a very important figure in American publishing? Mm-hmm. She overheard me get dismissed, and she just wanted to make it right. And you know she had no idea that I would have had anything decent. You know the odds were that I wouldn't have. She was just being kind, mm-hmm. and it turned out to give me 
basically a 30-year relationship with my publisher and a 30-year relationship with my agent. Wow. So I love It's kind like of that. a beautiful story. I know. It's, it it's is. Really, it's, it's an amazing story. And so one thing I've tried to do in as much as I can, I mean, I'm not an agent or an editor, but mm-hmm. I've tried to pay that back, you know, with my own students as much as I possibly can by making those kinds of connections for them when I can, you know, just introducing them to people and saying, hey, you should read this person's work because it's right up your alley, you know, just because I feel so fortunate of that little accidental moment that gave me my entire career. That is such a, I love that because in the book you write about how, how difficult it was there and that, you know, when you went to have, um, I think the final slip signed by, um, I can't remember his name, but he made you wait. We call him our advocate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he makes you wait for an hour and then says, oh, you'll have to come back tomorrow. And you, you just knew and you just walked out and you were like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not coming back here. <laughs> and right, I, I think right. it's so cool to hear that, how things shifted and, and because one person had overheard the unkindness and that. And I think it's really nice to be able to pay it forward to new writers because sometimes it can feel like it's sort of this secret society that you can't get into and right. <laughs> you're, you know, writing and putting stuff out there, but a lot of people don't know, you know, where to even begin sometimes. So it's great that you're able to help your students like that as well. And everybody, you know, that I know that has taken classes with you has spoken so highly of the experience. So, well, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, certain writing programs have certain aesthetics and if a student doesn't fit into their aesthetic, you know, they're going to be told essentially to stop writing, which is what I was told. And, um, you know, to me, that's just a, that's a crime, you know, that there's Mm -hmm. so many amazing voices out there and, um, you know, I've sort of made it part of my life's goal to, to, to be open to hear them and in in the graduate programs where I teach to keep my eye out for students who aren't being heard because, um, I mean, I was just so stubborn and I was raised by people who didn't like me. So that's, that actually set me up really well to hear all that negative feedback at Utah and to still keep going. I just think it, it's, it's so sad that, that, you know, in often in university writing programs, people pick their favorites and then everyone else is just forgotten about. And, and I, I just, uh, anyway, I, I, I founded an organization called um, Writing by Writers, which, which attempts to um, listen to everybody's stories equally and, you know, give everyone a place to succeed. I mean, not everyone has the same level of talent and not everyone has the same work ethic and it's not, you know, it, it's not equal and your chances of, publishing aren't equal and I can't make it that way, but I can certainly create a space where everyone's encouraged on the front end. And then depending on how their talent blossoms and depending on how hard they work, they have a chance and they're not just dismissed out of hand because they're not writing in a particular style. Yeah. And that's so important because, and especially now just everybody wants to hear from different voices. Nobody wants all the same type of writing. That's right. (laughs) You know? right. No, it's it's true. 
um, I teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts in, in Santa Fe, and that low residency program was created specifically to hopefully create a, a new renaissance in, in Native American literature. And it really, it is, it's working. And it, it's so beautiful. We, we've published 19 books in five years. Oh, and and, and awesome. when I say we've published, I mean those books have gone out and found homes. And in mm-hmm. some cases, like Tommy Orange's There There or Teresa Mayotte's Heartberries, you know, oh, they've yeah. gotten tons of attention. So, yeah. you know, you just have to hold a space for a voice and, you know, that voice will rise. And, um, and so a lot of the teaching I do these days is about that. It's about um, trying to make uh, safe spaces for, for writers who don't have traditional paths into academia or into the publishing world to, um, you know, to do their work and to make it better. And I think that's so important, too, because, you know, um, a lot of times, I, I wasn't able to afford a post-secondary education and I really struggled in school. So even applying for something, I can't get in. They always recommend, you know, doing this. So I love how it gives people the opportunity to still be able to show up and have their work seen and heard and to be able to get it out there. Yeah. And we've had in with writing by writers with my nonprofit, you know, we've really tried to listen to, what people need in terms of publishing. Mm-hmm. So we started out with just a, a five-day conference where people would bring 20 pages and we had six different writers teaching and, you know, that was our sort of test run and that's a good model and it's a very common model for writers' conferences. But we really took our, you know, evaluation seriously and we listened to what people need. So now we have everything from a three-day conference where it's all just generative and people come who are just, either starting a new project or just new writers come and they get inspiration from three different teachers and they just write and there's no reading in advance and you don't have to bring anything and you don't have to show yourself in a perfectly <laughs> safe. We have that all the way up to a two-year program where, you know, five people plus an instructor build a book. You know, they, each of the five have brought their idea and the first time we meet, they bring 50 pages and the second time we meet, they bring a hundred pages. And, you know, so, so I do think it's an exciting time for people who want to be writers because there's so many alternative versions of writing education, you know, springing up all over the place and you can really make it, you know, a, a program that fits, that you, you as an artist and also your mm-hmm. lifestyle and your schedule and, your job and like all the practicalities that the university doesn't always consider. Now, having said that, I teach in two universities. I teach for the Institute of American Indian Arts and the University of California, and I meet wonderful students in in both of those programs. So Mm -hmm. I'm not at all saying the university is bad. I just know it's not for everyone, and it wasn't for me, you know. Um, And so I've spent a good part of my life trying to create this other space as well. I I really love the idea of that. So when people come, like typically, you know, you talked about them coming in, in, you know, 50 pages, then 100 pages. How long does it span when you're you're working with that group? Um, That's a two-year program. We meet four times in two years, um, Mm -hmm. and we meet for four and a half days each time. And then there's also 
a little bit of work in between the meetings, but it's not like a low residency MFA. You don't send work and work and work and work to your mentor. It's more for people who are a little more self-motivated. They don't want to spend the kind of money that a low residency MFA requires. You don't get a degree at the end of it. What you get is your book. But it's complete um, and and ready to go. Yeah, 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 because you start about six months before the first meeting. So it's really a a two-and-a-half-year program, I guess, technically speaking. Um, have time to get a really solid draft together, I think. Um, you know, I, I, for me, as I said, it's about a four-year process to write a book, but in terms <laughs> of walking away with a first draft that's really workable, that takes about two, two and a half years for me. So that's how we designed it, you know. Um, and then we have another program called Boot Camp, um, which is for people who just want to bring their whole manuscript all at one time. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the same situation. It's, it's five other writers plus a, an instructor, and everybody reads each other's work, and that's just a one-time thing. But that's been super popular um, because a lot of people have novels in drawers yeah. <laughs> or memoirs in drawers, <laughs> and they just need serious eyes on them. And so mm-hmm. – um, we we do two of those a year, and honestly, we could do as many as we wanted um, and fill them. And what's great about that program, even though they only meet one time, you know, by the time the people get there, those other four people in your class are super invested in your book because, you know, they've read it and they've thought about it critically and they've come to the weekend prepared to talk to mm-hmm. you about it. So when people leave boot camp, they leave, you know, with several writer writing partners who were really invested in their books. So I, I know that they go on and as they do revisions, they stay in communication and, you know, we're just trying to make a space where people can meet up and find their right, you know, Mm -hmm. writing partners and mentors. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's also really, really rewarding is to see these books and then to watch people walk out saying, okay, in six months, I'm going to send you the next draft, you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's good. It's good. Yeah. Where can people sign up for, for these programs? Um, The website is, is writing by writers, which is writing X writers, like two by four, writing X writers.org. And, um, and there's a whole website and you can see all the different programs we offer. We have a really fun two week program in Chamonix, France, which is, very laid back. It's our longest, you know, time together. It's two weeks in France and we have a lot of time to just relax and talk about writing and people bring manuscripts. It's, it's really fun. We're this, I started this uh, organization with one of my closest friends, uh, Karen Nelson. We always used to say um, years ago, we used to say we could start, a multinational corporation together because <laughs> Pam could talk everybody into everything and then Karen could do everything else. <laughs> and, and that's really how it's worked out. I mean, uh, Karen is a full-time employee of the organization. I am not, but um, so she does all the, you know, all the organization and she's amazing. She's one of those people who can do that with one hand tied behind her back. And then, um, I'm the one who calls the writers and invites them, and you know we have creative meetings. I'm like more of the creative director, but 
we've had so much fun doing this. Um, we're now in our sixth year, and it's and we just keep adding new programs. It's great. It's so much fun. I think it's awesome because especially for someone like me, that's sort of how I rely on being able to get feedback, to go to classes that I can take that don't require me to have to go through, you know, college, university, and that right. kind of thing. And it, it is so helpful. And people, you forge relationships with, with people that you meet in these programs too that sort of become your lifelong writer friends and, and people that you bounce ideas off of or call when you're like, everything I write sucks. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. I mean, university programs can be great for the right people, mm-hmm. but they yeah. do eliminate a lot of kinds of stories that we need to hear, you know, from people that for whatever reason, you know, they weren't on that path and mm-hmm. they they and they can't break in because like you said, well, they dropped out of college or they never went to college or, you know, their parents had never really even thought about college <laughs> or <laughs> or they had um, you know, some kind of trouble at that time in their early life or they were raising children or they didn't speak English. <laughs> you know, like there's so many <laughs> there's so many people who who don't have a traditional background, who have really important stories to tell. I mean, traditional university background, who, who have really important stories to tell. And, um, and you know, the, the university writing programs did a great service in terms of creating a lot of books, but now these alternative programs, I think, are, are equally important to mm-hmm. the whole idea that, you know, we're there are many, many voices out there and many voices that we need to hear from if we're going to understand, you know, what it means to be alive at this time. Definitely. So sort of shifting gears a bit back to, you know, your work and being able to promote it. um, One of the things we sort of talked about in the pre-interview was how you add on to your book tour. And so for you specifically, does your publisher have planned stops for you where you go and 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 do a reading and then you kind of make your own plan outside of that as well? Yeah. Um, you know, my publisher usually sends me on about a three-week tour um, and I hit the cities that are the cities where they feel that I'm most likely to have a good audience and where I'm most read. So that's sort of mm-hmm. the whole West coast and then the cities in the West. And, um, but in truth, I, my career was made in part by a lot of small bookstores in, in outdoorsy towns, essentially, you know, so I, I the first night of my tour, I went to Santa Fe and there were 200 people in the store, you know, and, and I could go to Brooklyn and there might be 15, you know. So, um, mm-hmm. so for me, it's about paying attention to where I'm being read. And I do add on to my book tour. You know, it takes me a long time to write a book. So this isn't something I have to do often. But when I do have a book in the world, I really feel that it's my job to promote it. So I'll, I'll go to all the places my publisher sends me. And then I will add on. And those are bookstores that have been friendly to me in the past. I've cultivated relationships with bookstores, especially in mountain towns. You know, I'm 
I'm going at the end of this month, I'm going up to New England um, for four readings in bookstores and, you know, in places because New England is a place where people have farms and people love animals and people love the outdoors, you know. Um, Next week I'm going to the South for a few readings just because over the years there are particular bookstores in the South that hand sell me. Um, in, in, In the month of March, I'm loading up my husband and the skis and the snowshoes and we're going to drive around the Rocky Mountain West and we're going to hit the smaller stores. I mean, small compared to a giant city store, but they're big, important stores. Um, Fact and Fiction in Missoula, um, Country Bookshelf in Bozeman, Iconoclast Books in Sun Valley, you know, and these are stores that, you know, really aren't on the New York publishing industry's radar, but in Mm -hmm. fact, they are stores that, you know, that are in towns where people are serious about literature, where they're serious about the outdoors. And that's a, you know, that's a triangulation that, that works out well for me. So I'll be doing, I don't know, something like 15 or 16 readings in March. And that's all set up by myself. I'm driving in my car. We're going to go skiing. We're going to stay in nice little cabins and we're going to do readings at night. And, um, and that's, I've done that with every tour and it's worked out really well for me. You know, independent booksellers especially are, they're such loyal people and they're so dedicated. And of course there's not any real money in the book business. So, you know, they're, <laughs> they're doing this as a labor of love and I yeah. feel like it's the least I can do to show up and, you know, sell some books and celebrate independent well, book selling and do all that. Yeah. And I think it's great because you want to support the smaller you know, independently owned bookshops and they can sometimes be our biggest fans and bring people that are willing to buy our work, read it, rave about it. So I think it's really cool that you make sure that you go out of your way to make all these stops at different places outside of, you know, the usual, you know, bigger box stores as well. And do you find having these relationships with the booksellers is really helpful for you, especially with marketing the work and just having that support. Yeah. I mean, way back to Cowboys are my weakness, you know, which sold a lot of copies. That was my first book and it, it sold a lot of copies and basically gave me my whole career at that time. You know, book selling was really different. We, we hadn't even gotten to borders and Barnes and Noble yet. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was like Walden books and, so so there were the independents and then there were the chains and the chains didn't want to carry me at all. Um, they said, wow. they, they said about me, Oh, she falls somewhere between Larry Brown and Danielle Steele, which <laughs> if you, if you know those writers, like almost everybody yeah. falls between Larry Brown and Danielle Steele. <laughs> um, but so they didn't carry me. And so at first, and then the book, got really popular and so then they did but you know from the very beginning it was the independent booksellers who made my book um a success and also norton ww norton is an independent publishing house their their bent is toward the independent bookselling i mean that's who they really sell to that's who they care about supporting and so i've just been a norton author forever so that's you know that has become my um, ethic too, you know, and so, so, and, and also, you know, of course, 
the the giant stores, the giant chains, like they care a lot about books that sell a ton of copies. But if you're a, a, a an upcoming writer, you're someone who really wants to get published, or someone who wants to get your work in the world. Like the independents are going to be your champion, you know, way before yeah. a giant corporation is. And so it's really important, I think, that writers, struggling writers, young writers, aspiring writers, um, support the independents because you know, in a, in a corporate model, there's like 10 books in the world and everyone's reading them, you know, like that's, yes. that's their goal. <laughs> and so for anything that's offbeat or weird or experimental or, um, you know, or even just quiet, you know, just quiet, mm. beautiful stories, like it's going to be the independents who are going to champion those. Exactly. And then you also do uh, readings at libraries and that as well. And do you find that's a really great way to connect with the audience or, you know, how do librarians fit into it as well? Well, yeah, I mean, libraries are, I've done a lot of work with libraries and I've done a lot of benefits for libraries. I mean, obviously libraries are a super important part of our culture and it's mm-hmm. you know, one of one of the many things that are good for people that aren't getting the kind of support from the government that I think they should be. Um, I get invited to talk at libraries. It's not something I set up myself the, the way I set up the the readings at the little bookstores, but I do get invited to speak at a lot of libraries. And um, I mean, of course, you know, librarians like the independent bookstore owners, they're, they're, um, they are, they are working out of love and out of belief that literature can save us. And so, yeah, I do whatever I can to support libraries. I'm always happy to read at libraries. In in that case, it's an invitation coming to me from them. And, you know, I always say yes. Mm -hmm. I'm going up to do a little tour in Southeast Alaska in April of libraries and Sitka and Juneau and Ketchikan. Um, So that'll be really fun. Do you, you know, Throughout this process, do you have somebody that has mentored you that, you know, you continually go back to, to kind of for support and to just have somebody to bounce ideas off of? You know, I didn't really have living mentors in the publishing world. Um, You know, I had these teachers who didn't like my work and they were all men. Um, And I had this wonderful editor, Carol Hawksmith, who who passed away, who was kind of like a mother figure. Um, but now I have kind of my contemporaries. I just did a big show on stage in Portland to celebrate yeah. this book with Cheryl Strait and Lydia Yuknovich, and we had so much fun. And those are two women who, you know, I will turn to for support or advice or when I'm just so frustrated I'm going to scream um you know we we help each other another writer uh Samantha Dunn she's mm-hmm. become like a literary sister and these are all women who are roughly my age actually I think they're all a tiny bit younger than me but um you know we're kind of going through this life of uh being a woman writer yeah. being woman memoirist and fiction writers together and so we we help each other out a ton. Um, there were several people that in the really dark days of this book, when I thought it wasn't, 
going to make it to publication because of the because my editor was like, "This isn't the book you said you were going to write," and mm-hmm. I was like, "Yes, it is." <laughs> During that part, <laughs> that you know, there's a handful of people who were just so supportive. And just said, well, it doesn't matter if it's not a Norton book, then it's someone else's book. You just, you know, you've put all this work in, you have to keep going. And, you know, I'm really great. And and those were, I, those are the names I've said. Samantha Dunn, Cheryl Strayed, Lydia Yuknovich, um, a young writer um, named Taylor Brorby, uh, who's an environmental writer. He he just happened to walk in at the right moment and say the oh, right that's... thing. And so they really helped me through that, that difficulty and, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, especially as women memoirists, um, it's so important for us to support each other and to say good things about each other and to um, champion each other's work because there's just there's a lot of backlash against women memoirists and the idea that memoir isn't a legitimate form. And you know, I am a fiction writer and I was trained as a fiction writer, but um, this book is memoir and. Um, and now that I've written a memoir, I have been the recipient of that backlash. <laughs> and so now I know what my friends have been talking about all these years. And, yeah. um, so I do think, you know, just in like, here we are in the Me Too movement and here we are um, in the current administration's war against women. And, you know, I yeah. think women memoirists supporting each other at whatever level you're writing, you know, whether you're publishing or whether you're just trying to publish or whether you're just starting to write your memoir, like so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got, you really, I feel like I I met a little community through Lydia in Portland, um, taking a class with her and Jen Pasteloff and and I met these amazing women and, and we've, you know, stayed in touch and we keep trying to get together every few months in Portland (laughs) so we can kind of, go to these events and support each other and, you know, give each right. other pep talks when you have those sort of dark, dark nights where you think it's right. never going to happen. <laughs> sure. You know, a lot of people speak about mentoring and, and I hear people, you know, referring to their mentors, but I'm actually curious how would an aspiring writer, you know, specifically memoir or nonfiction based find their mentor if they're not able to, you know, be involved in any programs or anything like that? Do people simply reach out to you and, and you kind of decide whether you'll mentor them or is it sort of like an offering that that people do sort of thing, I guess? Well, I, I do think some people do it. Um, because I teach in two university writing programs and then I run my <laughs> own organization, I... I I very rarely will take on someone's work that doesn't come to me through one of those venues um, just because of time, you know, just because there's only so many hours in a day. Um, well, like- I, I encourage people to come to a writing by writers event, you know, so I can meet them. Mm-hmm. And, and there are people who ask me, Hey, would you just read some stuff for me? And, it just depends where I am in my life, whether I think I can, and it depends whether it's a 300-page novel or five pages that they just put <laughs> together, you know. Um, and, you know, I do wind up mentoring my graduate students because I get to work with them over a period mm-hmm. of two years, and I'm sure that will be true with our draft program and writing by writers because that's a, you know, a longer-term commitment um, for both of us. Um, I have a 
I, I invite former graduate students who have graduated and need a little more time to finish their book. I have invited several of them to the ranch to help me take care of the animals and mm-hmm. spend six months or a year finishing their book. I mean, that's sort of my most unofficial mentorship program. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's my most frequent though unofficial mentorship program because I can't just ask anyone. It has to be somebody who's like cold hardy and willing yeah. to like shovel horseshit. So exactly. um, <laughs> it's a particular kind of person who can do that mentorship. Um, but, um, you know, I do think, you know, there's lots of programs. Uh, Lydia's program, Corporeal Writing in Portland yeah. is, is a good one. You know, there's, yeah. there's ways to find your way to mentoring if you put yourself out there and engage. You know, I don't, I don't know that there's like a mentoring hotline. You know, no, well, that's the thing, right? It's, like, it's not like you can just call up some random author and be like, hey, want to be my mentor? So it really is kind of about showing up, you know, to workshops and things if you can't do the post-secondary education, at least if you're showing up to writers groups where they're doing different programs and that you get to know different people and, and sort of like become a mutual friend and then you know things sort of build from there so it's more of a natural process and not so much as reaching out and saying can you mentor me yeah and I also think um, I mean Cheryl talks about I think she calls it horizontal mentoring Um, like you know if if you go to these workshops and you meet two or three people that are basically at your same level you know you have part of a manuscript or you're trying to get a manuscript published or whatever you know, you guys can become each other's support mm-hmm. system. And in some ways, that's even better than, you know, I mean, I never had a mentor above me, you know, like someone who yeah. was looking after me and looking after my career. I love to mentor the students I mentor, and, and I, I'm i really enjoying it. It's another kind of form of mothering and parenting that, because I don't have kids, and, you know, now I have like 13, 26-year-olds who show up for Thanksgiving, you know, and so it's really fun. <laughs> It's great, um, but yeah. it can be done without it because I know because I did it. And for me, it was the other students in my cohort at Utah um, who I really got not only support but also, you know, a lot of knowledge from. I mean, we taught each other how to write because our teachers weren't very engaged. So mm-hmm. uh, the writer Deborah Monroe was in my cohort at Utah, and, you know, she really taught me about lyric flight for instance you know on the page and I think I taught her something about structure because I'm kind of a structuralist so you can learn so much from your friends who were learning you know at the same time yeah I think I really I think that's one of the things I've enjoyed about you know going to different workshops and and meeting other writers and just recently we were all helped there was a group of us helping each other with query letters. Like I can bang out a query letter that's really catchy and, you know, someone else has a really great eye for catching little details that you might have right. missed in in that. So we were all sort of helping each other to get ready for AWP that's coming up in March in Portland. Right. And I think it's it's really nice when you can find that community and grow it. And it was simply, I think for me, it was just simply going towards, you know, a workshop where I resonated with the writing of the people who are hosting the workshop. And then it seemed like, you know, my people were when I got there. So 
I'm really excited to check out Writing by Writers because I think the programs you mentioned sound really amazing and and really hands-on for people to have that opportunity. Right. Yeah, no, it's good. And, you know, Lydia, I mean, like you say, I mean, like-minded writers attract like-minded writers, and Lydia has taught in all of our programs at Writing by Writers over the years and will continue to, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we try to have a certain kind of teacher who is really giving and open and available, and students who come to study with me or Lydia are probably going to like each other's work just because it's Mm -hmm. a certain aesthetic and a certain set of subjects and, you know. Definitely. If you had the opportunity to go back in time to when you were just beginning your, your writing journey, what sort of advice would you, would you give yourself at that point? Well, it's, you know, the advice that I continue to give myself though, it falls on deaf ears, <laughs> meaning meaning my own. You know, I, I would say, like, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, which I guess is probably in general what I would say to my younger self. But, you know, I'm so self-critical. And on the one hand, I understand that as the price of admission to making art. And, yes. you know, I think if you become not self-critical, <laughs> if you become too unself-critical, that's probably a bigger problem, you know, yeah. and you start either making really bad art or, you know, you become someone that no one wants to hang out with. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think I'm, I was and am so self-critical and I tend to internalize the criticism so much more than the praise, which I just, again, I think that's just the, the state of being an artist and being sensitive and being open to the world in a way we have to be but I I wish that I could have gone a little easier on myself at various points, and I mm-hmm. still wish that were true. But I guess it's probably not going to happen. Because <laughs> <laughs> here I am at 57 and six books in, and it's really just the same as it always was. Well, and I think, too, there's a part of it when you're creating art. If you're self-critical, then you feel like you're all prepared yourself for bad reviews if, if and when they come up I mean at least that's how I sort of feel in some ways I'm like okay if I'm really hard on myself and when somebody else says something it can't affect me as bad but I'm not sure that that's actually working <laughs> right I, yeah, I think that is true um, I think you know in general we walk around guarding against bad news thinking that we will have accomplished the survival of it in advance um, and and I think that may not be true. Um, and I have to be reminded constantly um, about all the good things people are saying because I will affix to the one bad review or the one bad thing. And um, but but I'm in good company. Um, I had an experience of interviewing Toni Morrison few years ago, the wonderful experience of interviewing her and spending a few days with her and really getting to know her um, in a way that I think I would have never imagined I would have that opportunity. And um, after we spent a really wonderful day together and were in communication for a while, she, she called me 
to read me her Kirkus review for the new book, which at that time was love. And she read me the Kirkus review and, um, you know, it was just praise, praise, praise. It was like the one true American voice, not since William Faulkner. And uh, I mean, it couldn't have been more enthusiastic in its praise. And then the very last line of this little mini review said, with love, Ms. Morrison returns to the level of greatness that earned her a Nobel Prize. And so she finished reading, and I said, well, that's wonderful, Tony. It's going to sell a million books. That's a fantastic review. Congratulations. And she said, what does she mean, return? (laughs) And it was just this one word, you know. It was this one word in this otherwise glorious review and I and I thought to myself, well, this is kind of a new friendship moment. So I said, well, I think she means that she didn't like Paradise, which was the book before that. And Tony said, Paradise was my best book. And I said, look, I loved Paradise. <laughs> I said, I couldn't have loved it more, but this reviewer didn't get it or something, you know. Yeah. And and I hung up the phone, you know, and I thought, and, I mean, she said, and then when, and so after I said that, she said, I want everyone to love all my books. And I said, well, so many people do, you know. And, and, I, and I hung up the phone and I just thought, well, there it is. You know, you're Toni Morrison and you've won every single award in the world that there is. Exactly. And the word you hear in that review is return. And I thought, well, that's a measure of her greatness. You know, that's. I mean, too bad that we can't ever give give ourselves a break. But on the other hand, like, that's why she's so great, because that's the word she's going to hear. And it actually made me feel better. I was like, okay, well, that's just what it means to be a writer, is to Mm -hmm. always be, you know, wanting to get it exactly right in everyone's mind, you know. And, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, that's why she's so great that that's the word she's going to hear. And so it did make me feel okay. It made me feel less crazy about how hard I am on myself. I'll say that to know that I was in such, you know, great company. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because I think, you know, most of my friends, when they, when they publish, there's always like one ornery review on Goodreads. (laughs) Right. You know, where somebody just, is happen- I think a lot of times it depends on when somebody reads your book, what's happening in their life, and I think sometimes reviews are made by people that are not happy, and you know maybe they didn't genuinely like it. But most of the time, I've kind of always I had a friend get a bad review and and I read it and and then I checked out the person's profile and they were also a writer trying to get published and I thought well one that's not very good. It's <laughs> not right. going to help your career, but it it kind of showed. And then I looked, and they had given all these amazing books one star, and right. it blew my mind because I'm like, there's no way any of books are one star. And so right. it was kind of a good sort of teachable moment when I saw that and saw, you know, you never know where your bad reviews come from. You don't always know where they're coming from, and sometimes, you know, it's perspective and we always tend to focus on the one person who doesn't love us <laughs> trying to right. win their approval, so true. Right? yeah yep. but I think 
I love that story because it's so real that, you know, how right. successful Toni Morrison is <laughs> and still saying, but what does this mean? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was a superhuman moment. And I mean, it was a very human moment. <laughs> it was not a superhuman moment. It was a human moment. And it, it just made me say, okay, well, I guess that is my friend Fenton Johnson calls this the price of admission to our art form. And I guess that's really true. Definitely. Well, I'm so glad we got to have this conversation today. I'm really grateful for your work and for your advice and being able to share with all our listeners as well. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking. Pam Houston can be found online at www.pamhouston.net or her writing site, writingxwriters.org. Join us next time for more tips and tricks on how to write and publish your book. In the meantime, please do make sure you pick up a copy of Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country by our guest, Pam Houston, and leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads. Thank you for listening. Hand to heart, pen to paper, write on. Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals. 